Thank you. going to start off with a question. Who can tell me the famous saying that a comedian, oh, in the 80s, maybe, 70s, um, what, what his famous saying was, Flip Wilson. Yeah, the devil made me do it. Well, Recently, in listening to uh, messages on TV and, and um, hearing people talking, I've heard people given all kinds of claims to Satan. They give him all kinds of authority. People unknowingly give him all kinds of power over their lives. And I'm tired of it. And so I commenced to study and and um, the Lord placed this message on my heart about Satan, and the title of the message is The Biggest Loser. Does that tell you what I think of Satan? And it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what does a good book say about him? What does the Bible say about Satan? And so tonight, we're going to take a look at The Biggest Loser. Now, um, you know, when, when generals are about to go to battle, one of the first things they do is they study their opponent. They want to know what, what their opponent's weaknesses is, what, their, what the strengths are, and they plan accordingly. Well, we are told so much about Satan and what he is and what he isn't that we don't even know our enemy anymore. And so we believe lies like Flip Wilson would have said, the devil made me do it. Let me just start off and tell you this, matter-of-factly, the devil never made you or anyone else in this world do anything. Never. He doesn't have that power. He doesn't have that authority. So we're going to start off with that devil is the biggest loser. Well, what is the names? The Bible has a lot of names in, uh, in it that talks about uh, the devil. Uh, he's referred to as Satan. And if you look at the original Hebrew, Satan translates into the adversary. That's what in Hebrew Satan means, the adversary. He's called the devil. In, uh, in Latin, devil is translated Diablos, which means the slanderer and accuser. Other places in Scripture, he's referred to as Lucifer. Well, that's just once. Once in Isaiah, he's, he's referred to as Lucifer. And in Hebrew, that's referred to as son of the morning. Um, the Pharisees referred to Satan as Beelzebub. The Scripture, other places, is, he's referred to as the serpent, the evil one the red dragon, the god of this age, the god of this world, the prince of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of air. Well, 
Who was he? What was he? Because Satan is not the same as what he started out to be. Satan started out, well, we find in Ezekiel, we're going we're gonna to reference Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, and, I, and, and you're going to, so I'm hoping if they put it up on the board, you can follow there, because you're going you're gonna, to uh, wear your Bible out tonight um, going to Scriptures. Ezekiel 28, talking about um, uh, the Satan, he said that in the, he was perfect, he was beautiful, he was wise, he was created, and he was ordained as a guardian cherub. That all sounds like good stuff, doesn't it? And so I'm, if you're following the verses, that's Ezekiel 2, but I'm, I'm on Ezekiel um, 28, 12 through 17 is where I was uh, getting those references from. So he was perfect, he was beautiful, he was wise, he was created and ordained as a guardian cherub. Doesn't sound like too bad of a beginning, does it? Hmm? Yeah. So that's how Satan started in creation with those things, those attributes. But what happened? Well, it wasn't long until he lost his position. And now if you'll go to the, the, uh, the 28.2 that you had on the board before, it says, the word of the Lord came to me. It says, son of man, say to this prince of Tyre, thus saith the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, and I sit at the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas, yet you are not a man and not a God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Satan took all the wonderfulness that God initially created in him, and where did it go? He became prideful. He thought he was more than what he was. He thought that he was God. Or at least he wanted to be like God because he wanted to be worshipped. And there's only one being that is worthy to be worshipped. And that's God. God said in the Old Testament, he says, I will not share my glory with no other. And so when Satan thinks he's good enough to be considered God, God says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to put a stop to this now. I will not share my glory. And because of that, he was kicked out. He was cast out of heaven. In Isaiah, we find in the 14th chapter, 12th to the 15th verse, we find these words. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above all the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here it is. I will make myself like the most high. This is what Satan is saying. I will make myself like the most high. But God says, no. No. And then the next phrase, but you are brought down to Sheol, 
to the far reaches of the pit. When Satan took his wonderful position of being perfect and beautiful and wise and ordained as a guardian cherub and he became puffed up in his heart, God says, no, I will not share my glory. And your wickedness, I will deal with. I will drive you out in, a, in disgrace because your heart became proud because of your beauty. And that's also in Ezekiel 28. Jesus said, talking about this event in Luke 10, he said, I saw Satan fall like the lightning from heaven. And that's when he was cast out of heaven. He's no longer allowed in the presence of heaven, in the presence of God, like he was in the book of Job. In Job, we, you know, we, you find the story where how, you know, people, God said he allowed the angels to come and give an account, and they would come up, and when Satan's turn come up, and God said, where are you? And he said, I was to and fro about the earth. But that was before. That was somewhere between Genesis and when Genesis 1, when God created, because we know in the beginning, God said at the end of the seventh day that all things are, what are they? Not just good. For, six day, or for five days, he said good. On the sixth day, he said very good. Sin hadn't entered into creation yet. Things were very good. So somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, Satan became puffed up and got cast out of heaven. So, what else did we find out about Satan? Well, in Revelations 12, 7 to 10, it says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So he lost his place. He's no longer in heaven. He no longer gives an account to what he does during the day. Now he's here. But what we need to find out, what is he here? What's he doing here? What authority does he have here? What's his role here? What can he do? What can he do? And that's what we need to understand. Well, let's, first of all, let's, let's talk about what he ain't. Excuse my English. What he ain't. Well, if you look at the, at the attributes given to God... God's given three big words. It's his attributes. Omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Well, Satan ain't any of them. None of them. Let's look at them just for a minute. Omnipresent. Omnipresent, when we say God is omnipresent, he is everywhere at all time. There is nowhere that God does not exist. Satan is not omnipresent. What does that mean to me and you? Well, if Satan 
just as an illustration, if Satan is in Charleston, let's take it, if Satan's in Washington, <laughs> and there's, one could argue that, <laughs> if Satan's in Washington, he is not in Gasaway. He can only be one place at any given time. Period. He is not omnipresent. However, and you need to understand this, he may be in Washington, in our scenario. How is he here? He's not personally here, but he has a legion of demons. He has his helpers. They are here. So you say, well, but there's a... There's seven and a half billion people in this world. How can there be enough of demons to go around? Well, Scripture says that is a, there's a reference that in heaven, right after the marriage supper, the great marriage banquet, that 10,000 times 10,000 plus thousands upon thousands of angels are singing to the Lord. If you do the math, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Now, 100 million is quite a bit short of 7.5 billion, but that's just how many angels are in the choir. Okay? In the choir. Do you get it? <laughs> that's not the people at the banquet... <laughs> That's not the people, the angels doing other things. That's just the amount of angels in the choir, 100 million. So if there's 100 million angels in the choir, how many, how many angels is there elsewhere? Hmm? Well, we also know Scripture says that when Satan fell and he lost the war in heaven and was kicked out, Scripture tells us in Revelations 12, that Satan took one-third of the angels with him. So it, does that give you an idea? How, if there's 100 million angels in the choir, there's got to be a lot more angels than that, but one-third of them were cast out because they were fallen. And that's your dynamic force that we have in the world today. So Satan can't be everywhere, but he has a lot in his army. Okay, the next one is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. God is all-powerful. There is nothing that God can't do. I got one amen. I'll say it again. There is nothing that God can't do. Okay, now that's what I want to hear. That's right. Nothing that he can't do. How does that apply to Satan? Well, Satan is not omnipotent. He does have some power, but there's a lot of things, a lot of things he can't do. One thing, like contrary to Flip Wilson, he can't make you do anything. Now, we don't know exactly what all he can do by Scripture, but here's what we do know, that when Satan was tempting Jesus... He could take Jesus to the top of the temple. So somehow or another, he has the ability to be outside of gravity or something. I don't know. 
We don't know exactly, but he could take Jesus to the top of the temple. But then in the very next temptation, we find what Satan can't do. We assume that because he said to Jesus, you're tired, you're hungry. Turn those rocks to bread and eat them. Well, what would have been a bigger temptation, turning the rocks, Jesus turning the rocks, or Satan turning the rocks himself and handing Jesus a slice of buttered bread? Nice and warm, huh? Wouldn't that be more of a temptation? So the assumption is he couldn't do that. He doesn't have that authority. He doesn't have that power. He doesn't have the creating ability that God. Remember, God's all-powerful. Satan is not. He couldn't change the rocks into bread. So that's one of those things where you just got to think through what the Scripture says. The third attribute, omniscient, all-knowing. God knows all. All. And as Pastor John says, what's the Greek word for all? What's the Hebrew word for all? What's the Spanish word for all? I don't know. I'm making this up. <laughs> I don't know that any of that's true. But uh, <clears throat> all means all. That I do know. All means all. God knows all. Scripture tells us that before you think a thought, he what? He knows. Scripture tells us before you say a word, he knows. In fact, he knows that you're going to do those things. There is no surprises to God. None. He knows what you're going to do. He knows what you're going to say. He knows what you're going to think. You can't hide from God. Because he knows he knows. He's all-knowing. Okay, so that's what Satan ain't. He, ain't uh, he is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. So, what is he now? If he's not those things, what is he? Well, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. One of the things that we'll find when we, we study the scripture about Satan, because Satan so much wants to be worshipped, he wants to be so much like God, that he is constantly trying to be just like him, to emulate him, to imitate him. And so, in, in John... John, in chapter 8, Jesus said that I am the light of the world. So what this Corinthians tells us, Satan tries to imitate. He imitates Jesus by being an angel of light. But he is fake. He is fake. It's just a masquerade. It's just an imitation. He is not the real thing. He will never be. Some other things about uh, Satan. John 8, 44. It says, you are the, Jesus speaking now to the Pharisees, he says, you are the father of the devil. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now speaking of the devil, Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. One translation says his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So, what is he now? He's a liar and he's a murderer. And no truth, just like all always means all, no always means no. There is no truth in him. None. Never. None. Revelations 12. Here's some, some of the things we find about Satan. Revelations 12.10. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, now, is it, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And here we go. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down who accuses them before God day and night. What is he? He's an accuser, just like his name says. He's an accuser, a slanderer. And it's always a lie. He may take one little figment of truth in your life, but he twists it. He, does, he, he changes it to make it seem like it's so much worse and he's always accusing you before God day and night he's an accuser Ephesians 4:27 says and do not give the devil an opportunity to work satan is and his demons are constantly looking around looking for an opportunity that they can get into you they can get into your life, get into your circumstances, get into your job, get into your car, get into your marriage. They're looking for opportunities, always. Does that give us any hope? Well, yeah. Don't give them any opportunity. You're in control. The devil didn't make you do it. You allowed him to do it because you gave him an opportunity to work. Stop it. It's really that simple. It really is. You're in control. He is not. If you don't give him the opportunity, he can't work. So when someone does that thing to you, whatever that thing is, let it go. Someone rips you off, let it go. Driving down the road and they cut you off, let it go. Don't give Satan and his demons an opportunity to do their work. First Timothy 3.7 says, oh, I'll get ahead of you, I'll back up one. Put the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the devil's strategies, Ephesians 6.11. Strategies. Satan and his demons don't just sit around waiting for an opportunity. They sit around and they strategize. That's, what script, that's not my words, that's what scripture says. They have a strategy. 
Just like when you go to war, the generals have a strategy. They go over here with some troops. Then they'll send some around this way to get on your backside, try to get, to, to get the upper hand on you. Satan and his demons are the same way. They have strategies. But you still have to give them the opportunity. You still have to give them the opportunity. 1 Timothy 3, 7. He must be well thought of by his outsiders. Speaking, this is speaking of uh, the demon, uh, de- <laughs> demon. Uh, deacon's qualifications. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, he must be well thought of by his outsiders so that he doesn't fall into disgrace and the trap set for him by the devil. Satan needs an opportunity. They sit around and they strategize how they can get at you. And they also set traps. Oh, maybe we should start being scared. No. We don't need to be scared. Not yet. No, by no means. We'll talk more about that later. I, but I want you to see what the enemy's like. 2 Timothy 2.26. So that they might escape the devil's snare, even though they've been held captive by him to do his will. Setting traps. They're setting snares. But you still have to walk into the snare. Do you know what a snare is? Do you ever see what a snare is? It's a, it's a piece of wire that's got a loop in it. And if you walk through the snare, your head will fit through, the animal's head will fit through the snare, but it catches on your shoulder, and then it pulls tight, and then you can't get out. But in order for the snare to work, you have to stick your head into the snare. So if you don't want to get caught by the trap or the snare, don't put, set your foot in the trap, and don't put your head in the snare. And he can't catch you. First Peter 5 8, be clear-minded and alert. Your, your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We do have an enemy. And he is crafty. And he is non-ending. Here he's talking like he's looking looking around, prowling, looking for someone to devour, just like a lion. Lion. Saturday, you'll be on your tree stand. You're looking forward to being out there, being with the, the old bow and maybe harvesting a deer. Well, deer's still got to come around, doesn't it? Or you go home empty-handed. And even if the deer does come around, doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, does it? Oh, you're the great white hunter. You always get your kill, huh? Is that what you're telling me? Okay. <laughs> well, a lion doesn't always catch his prey, but it doesn't mean that he's not always looking for the prey. John 10.10, 10, speaking of Satan, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. When Satan, when he's prowling, when he's setting his trap, setting his snare, and putting his strategies and looking for an opportunity, he's not doing it so you can get together Saturday night and play cards. He has nothing but the most evil, the most heinous objectives for your life. Still to kill and destroy. He is not your friend. He is not your buddy. 
He is not someone you want to hang out with. In fact, you should do just the opposite. Tell him to get out in the name of Jesus. Okay. 2 Corinthians 2.11 So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Remember what I said? We've got to study the enemy. Know how he works. Know what his objectives are. Know what it, that he's planning and he's trapping and snaring and looking for opportunities. We know that. I've just told you. Scripture has said it. So you know you're not ignorant because you've been told. Satan. First Corinthians, or, uh, Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the darkness of this present world, against the f- spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, Satan and his demons are, have infiltrated a large portion of what we know as society. Have you noticed? Just turn on the TV. (laughs) Just watch the news. I don't care what channel. (laughs) They're there. And they're wreaking havoc because too many have allowed them to play. Too many. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist someday, the coming of the lawless one will be accompanied by the power of Satan. He will use every kind of power, including miraculous signs, lying, wonders, and every type of evil to deceive those who are dying, those who refuse to love the truth that would save them. So, lying, miraculous signs, every kind of power, every type of evil. Gee, and that what I just saw this morning on the news being played out? This world's crazy. I mean, crazy. I, I tell my children that the world that I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. It's gone. Should I feel bad about that? I don't. Why? Because I have hope. I have nothing but hope. My faith is more secure today than it has ever been. And that faith is very secure. Not only because I have God's word, because he lives in my heart. He has wrote about the things that we are seeing in the TV right now thousands of years ago. And it's playing right before our eyes, just as if we're sitting down on the couch and reading a book about it. In fact, that's what we are doing. We are reading our Bibles, right? We are reading the book, right? You are seeing what he wrote is going to happen. Because it is happening right now. And it won't be long. I'm telling you, it won't be long. I shared this, I think it was with my son, the Sunday school class 
a couple of weeks ago. I was a little boy. I had something about like this. We were sitting on the porch. I was sitting on the porch with Grandpa. And out of nowhere, Grandpa said to me, he said, boy, that's what I was known as, boy. I didn't have a name back then. I was just boy. Boy, he said, if you live a full life, you will never die. I believed that all my life. I don't have, there's no tombstone with my name on it. I don't need one. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's no, I didn't do any pre-planning. I ain't going to be here. When I go, when the Lord comes back, nobody's going to care about (laughs) my body or my tombstone anyhow because it's the end and I'm going to be with Jesus. I've accepted what my grandfather told me as a young boy all my life and I've lived believing that. Some people might think I'm crazy. I don't have a life insurance policy. I don't need one. I'm looking forward to dying. And when I die, there ain't going to need to be any insurance policy to cash in. There's going to be any economy left. When Christ returns, it all crashes. So you may think I'm crazy. John, you talk about being out of debt. I'm looking forward to the day that I look up and hear that trumpet sound. And I'm called to the heavens, to the clouds. That's what I bank on. Not life insurance policies, not pre-planning funeral services. I don't need them. Because I'm going to live long enough till Jesus returns. And I look up and I'll see my Savior in the clouds in the air when that trumpet sounds. Hmm. Yes. Had to get down that little bird path there. Now let's finish this thing up. How do we overcome? How can you ensure that Satan doesn't get a hold of you? Doesn't, that you don't get in his trap? That you don't become snared? That you don't give him opportunities? Well, Scripture gives us some helps on that too. How do we overcome Satan? Well, this isn't Scripture. This is just my own little opening uh, statement to get into that. We should never underestimate the devil. He is a sly and skillful foe with many years of experience in dealing with humankind. But, this is the part, he has serious limitations, especially in the life of the believer. Are you a believer? If you are, and I pray that you are, and those out on the World Wide Web, if you're not, now is the time to accept Jesus as your Savior so that you can say, I'm a believer, and that I, all these promises that we're going to talk about, you can claim as well as yours. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't give me a special promise, and you not. All the promises that are in his good book is good for all, all of us, all the time. Okay, so 
Jude 1, 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if the archangel Michael doesn't feel that he has the power and authority to do hand-to-hand combat with Satan, we should neither. However, doesn't mean we have no weapons. What did that verse tell us? What did the archangel Michael say? The Lord rebuke you. If you're a believer, you have the same authority All you need to do is say, Satan, in the name of Jesus, depart. You have no authority here. You have no right to be here. I am saved by the blood of Jesus, and there is nothing you can do now or ever. Never. All by the blood of Jesus, because I'm a believer. And you're a believer. Wow. Now that's a weapon. You hear the news talking about weapons of mass destruction? Ain't nothing compared to the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will run away from you. It doesn't say stand strong against Satan and do battle. It says submit to God. How do you submit to God? You got to catch this. How do you submit to God? Well, God says, God's word is full of don't do this, but do this. Do you know what his word says? How are you going to submit to God if you don't want to know what his word says? I hope that pricks you in the heart because some of you it should. Do you ever pick up your Bible? I remember a story that the pastor came to, to uh, uh, visit a family in his church. And, um, and it was during the summertime. And uh, the lady invited him in. And she said to the, the, her son, she goes, go get the book that mommy always reads. And he brings back good housekeeping. If that scenario was in your home and you said to your child, go bring me the book that I always read, what would be brought? Hmm? How are you going to submit to God if you don't read the book? You got to know what he expects of you before you can submit to him. But if you submit to him, if you read the book, follow what it says, What does the the truth say? That resists the devil and he will run from you. (laughs) Another wonderful weapon. Just submit to God. And the devil will flee from you. He knows. When you're submitting with God and the Holy Spirit is powerful around you, the devil knows he can't do anything. Nor does any of his demons Can they do anything? They know where they can't go. They know what they can't do. They know lives that they can't touch. 
And they're not stupid. Remember, they're wise. In the beginning, they were created wise. They know if they can't do anything here, why waste the time? I'll go somewhere else to cause damage, to steal, kill, and destroy. So is your life that kind of life that the demons realize we can't do anything here? This spiritual stronghold is outside of our reach. Is that what they see when they come to you? A spiritual stronghold of Jesus? They'll flee. The next one, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said, take every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is this part of, of submitting to God. Take every thought captive. You're in, a, you're in a store. Guys, I'm talking to you now. You're in a store, and that young lady that has a little bit more showing than she should, a little bit more attractive than she should be, Where's your eyes? Where's your heart? Where's your thoughts? Are you taking your thoughts captive? Okay, women, I'm not letting you off either. What about that, what about that toy that you want? That thing for the kitchen? That craft? I don't know enough about you in your lives. Sometimes, don't you... The motor, you have a motorcycle, that new motorcycle. I'm just trying to think of what I know about some of you all here. Uh, is it, do you find yourself coveting? Man, if I wish I could have, wish I could afford that. Man, that would be so nice. It's really no different than the guy looking at the, the woman and saying, wow, I wish I could have that. It's the same thing. Your heart is out of place. You're not taking your thoughts captive. There's no like these hierarchy of bad things. They're all sin. And you need to take them captive all the time for you to be safe from Satan. Second Timothy 2.15 tells us that we need to rightly divide the word of truth. Going back to scripture again, do you know your Bible? Can you quote it? Do you know what it says? Scripture clearly teaches us what's right and what's wrong. And let me tell you, there is no gray area. There is no fence. Either it's right or it's wrong. Either it's holy or it's sinful. There is no middle of the road. And for those of you that think, well, I'll just, I'm somewhere in the middle, I'll just sit on the fence, Satan owns the fence. So you've, you've, you've lost already if you think you're in the middle and sitting on the fence. There is no gray. It's black and white, good and evil, holy and pure. But you've got to know your word. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. 
but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call in the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore, but there's still stuff that, that um, I got to watch what I think about. I got to watch what channel I turn on the TV. I got to watch what I listen to in the radio. I'm not much of a book reader, so I don't need to worry about that. And the, the whole pornography books, that never really uh, appealed to me at all, so I, that's not an issue. Um, but there is, there's, we all, each of us as individuals, we all have those things that's our snares, that's our traps. We need to stop them. We need to stop, our, stop sticking our head in the snare. We need to stop setting our foot in the trap. And a lot of them are stuff that we started as a kid and got caught up in, and we just never matured. <laughs> we just, that little kid, need to grow up. Stop youthful lusts. Now, the last couple verses that I give you, I have another little phrase that I want to share before we start. And if we, we got to hear this, and we got to accept this for these last couple verses to really mean something. We are not fighting against the devil for victory. We are not fighting the devil for victory. But rather, from victory that's already been won on the cross of Christ. I'm going to say it again. We are not fighting for victory, but rather from victory already won on the cross by Christ. We already won. We already are the victors. We, there's no reason to live in defeat. We are already victorious because we are a son of the Most High God. Jesus lives in our hearts and he has given us the Holy Spirit. We have victory. So we don't need to fight Satan like we're doing battle against him. We already won. Don't give him an opportunity. Don't give him an opportunity. Now, some closing scriptures. Now, I want um, to prove this scripture, um, to, to prove that point, I want to give you a story in uh, the Old Testament with the king Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 20.12, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, recognized that when greatly outnumbered by his enemy, he prayed, O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Now he was admitting that his enemy was more powerful, more numerous, and likely going to defeat him. He was thinking that he had to fight for victory. Okay? But here's what God says just three verses later. He says in verse 15, God answered King Jehoshaphat's prayer through the prophet saying, the battle is not yours, but God's. 
but God. See, we, we, we already have victory. God has already won. He has done all the things that need to be done to ensure that you never need to lose. Never. <laughs> never. You are always the victor. If you do what you need to do. Stay on the Lord's side. Because God already has the battle won. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around. Oh, I already read that one. Uh, seeking whom he need to desire. You need to be watchful. You need to be ready to know when the victors, when the enemy is coming. Look for him. You know what he looks like. You know what your weaknesses are. If you have an alcohol problem, don't go to a bar. If you have trouble with drugs, don't hang out with the buddies you used to hang out with. Be smart. Be smart. If you have trouble with pornography, stay off the computer at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, come on. This isn't rocket science. We stick our heads in the snare willingly. Don't do that. You are smarter than that. You can live in victory if you just allow yourself to. But you have to want it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with each temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's, we said Satan has, sits around and him and his demons have strategy. God's got a strategy too. He's planning ahead. He is working so that you can be victorious. All you got to do is walk through the right doors. And not go through the wrong doors. He's got this plan for you. I know from, for me in, in my life, when I was, had been going through some difficult times, I had some personal truths that I always held on to. One is, whatever I'm going through is not a surprise to God. Never. Two. Whatever happens, it will be good because Scripture says all things work together for, for the good of those who love God who have been called according to His purpose. So no matter what happens, it will be good. And three, I can rest assured that God has a plan, and that plan is a good one. Not only is it good, it is perfect. Always perfect. And it accomplishes what God's will is for me and those around me. So no matter, no matter what I go through, it's not a surprise to God. Whatever happens will be good. And God always has a plan, a perfect plan. That's how I get through. That's how I face issues in life. And then I don't get woe is me. Because I know the battle's not mine, but God's but God's. 2 Kings 6.16 
as the prophet Elisha looked out with his servant on the hills and seen that the enemy, 180,000 troops, was in the hills. The servant was scared. What are we going to do? He looked at the problem. Remember I just said, what I don't do, I don't go, the woe is me. I trust in God. Elisha said, Elisha said, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. I don't care what the situation is, what Satan and his demons put on you, God's got a better plan. It's victory, and it's already won. All you've got to do is have the faith. You don't always have to see the results right up front. You just have to have the faith to believe that God's got a plan, and it's going to work out, and it's going to be good. Going to be good. Going to be good. Going to be good. In fact, it's going to be great. Don't matter how big the pitfall is that I have to walk through, the plan is good. It's going to be great, and I'm going to live in victory. Always, if you keep your eyes on the Lord and give him the credit. And the last verse that I want to close with, John said in his first letter, 4-4, he says, little children, and I, I don't know, that maybe that doesn't apply to me. I don't know, maybe he's a big boy, I don't know. But uh, um, little children, you are from God. And have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Who is in the world? The biggest loser. But who's in me? Who's in you? Jesus. Jesus. Father, we just thank you for your word. We love you, we need you, and we know that you love us too. In your name, we commit our lives and our destiny and our souls. Jesus, amen.